Hey, Delta. Hey, Kelsey. Today's rivalry is set about 100 years ago in old Hollywood. If you were a star during this time, what would you be known for? I would be known for moaning. Like it would be something that um, <laughs> I would have kept a corset first of all in the twenties. Okay. I would have. I I need that. Um, so I would have been known for being the figure eight. <laughs> it would be like Delta Delta Eight. Right. Uh huh. Right. They would be like dangerous curves ahead, <laughs> because nobody was wanted to be curvy in the twenties. Right. Dangerous they wanted curves to ahead. be straight up and down, and I would be like, I just got to stick to this traditional way and I would lure people in with my scent my fragrance this is fierce rivalries with me delta work and with me kelsey paget each week i tell delta the true story behind an infamous or an underrated rivalry with all the dramatic and sometimes petty twists and turns and then i'll declare the winner but not every story has a victor sometimes it's just about who loses more So today we are talking Hollywood. We are talking two sides of it. We're talking about a great, you know, a person of great acting talent and a person of okay. great star ability. How those two came uh-huh. together and fought. And they are Joan Crawford and Betty mm. Davis. Oh, my God. You know, I, you just always think of that, that cigarette mm. with either one of them, whether they were. I mean, they probably did smoke. Uh, oh, they smoked. I yeah. uh, I've been watching it's not just a character <laughs> so much about both of them and I am a uh, ex smoker a former smoker and I am just so jealous uh-huh. oh they mm. smoke constantly and it's just it looks yeah. delicious <laughs> it looks amazing <laughs> they look so cool sorry right this is not this the, the <laughs> we're not advertising that we're just saying you know you know if that's what you if that's what you do or or did um, <laughs> do with that what you will yes exactly. So anyway, yes, they're both old Hollywood glamour. These two women, they both started out in Hollywood in the silent movie era in the late 1920s. They both became famous and then were in the early talkies. And they had careers that extended all the way into the 1980s. So this is a huge amount of time. (laughs) And they hated each other for a lot of that time. And their feud is legendary. It has fighting over men, fighting over roles, teaming up, and still fighting over everything. (laughs) Right, right. So I want to do a big caveat, which is to say that, as with so many stories about Hollywood, it's hard to know what's true. You know, there's lots of rumor, innuendo, people trying to cash in. There was a recent Ryan Murphy-produced show on FX called Feud um, about this story, uh, and it dramatizes a lot of this. And that being said, these stories persist in our culture and color our understanding of these women and our history. So I think it's important to tell. All right, so let's start. Let's get some background. Let's start early on these women's lives. We'll start with Betty Davis. She was born in 1908 in Massachusetts. She grew up loving theater and she started doing touring theater. And then eventually she got scouted to go to Hollywood, to Universal Studios to do a screen test. So at the time, there was this thing called the studio system. Do you know much about the studio system? Well, I feel like it was kind of like um, the way I look back at it is, you know, in some families, they're like, we're a Ford family. We're a Chrysler (laughs) family around here. Uh From what I can understand, you would get pulled into a studio 
and they would find jobs for you. So you might be a, a background player, you might be uh, a dancer, or you might be something like that. And then from within that, you could move up in a way and catch someone's eye as maybe a leading person. Yes. It's so instead of like getting a job on a movie, you got a job mm -hmm. with a studio and then you would make right. a bunch of movies for them. Um, and in some ways, there were benefits to this because, like you said, you could work your way up. You could get noticed. Uh, but in other mm -hmm. ways, they took advantage of a lot of people because you were kind of owned by the studio. You kind of had to do what they told you to do. I see that. And I feel like the studios too, like I've always, I mean, again, this is, you just started this by saying people say, I heard this and I heard that. And it's really only <laughs> what I've heard. Well, but, um, but when I was at RKO, uh, no, I, uh, but yeah, you know, this is what you're going to wear to a, to this event. And this is who you're going to go on a date with. And that's always been fascinating to me. Yeah. So Betty Davis, she has a screen test at Universal and it goes really poorly. She, they say she's not sexy. She's not what they want for the screen. But, you know, you, you're here today. We're paying you for the screen test. So you might as well help us help us out. So she gets to stay there and be the sort of not mannequin, but the, the the other person in the room when all these men come in and do their screen tests. So she gets okay. to stand in as this love interest. Um, so later on when she told the story, she said, I was the most Yankiest, most modest virgin who ever walked the earth. And they laid me on a couch and I tested 15 men. They all had to lay on top of me and give me a passionate kiss. Are they taking applications for this job still? <laughs> This sounds perfect. <laughs> I don't need to be a star. I don't need to do any of that. Just use me as a dummy. Right? Fine. <laughs> like, that's perfect. Perfect. So, you know, she didn't think it was perfect. She hated it. She said, oh, I thought I would die. I thought I just would die because she was so, you know, young and naive. So that was her first screen test. She had another screen test. And then they were like, no, this is not going to work out. You are not going to be a movie actress, maybe go back to the theater. But this one uh, cinematographer said, you know what? She has really lovely eyes. Maybe she'd be good for this movie, Bad Sister. So anyway, she gets a role and she's in a movie. Oh, this is fully a silent film still. Yes, totally a silent film. Okay. So having okay. like big exaggerated features is helpful, I think, in silent film. Sure. You know, so Bad Sister comes out in 1931, really, you know, gives her her start. You know, so she's in a bunch of movies for Warner Brothers, this is. And she actually ended up staying for the next 18 years with Warner Brothers. Wow. Yeah. I've never had a job that lasted that long. <laughs> mm-mm. Mm-mm. How long have you been doing drag? You're not supposed to ask. Oh, okay. All right. Age. I won't ask you that. Sorry. I'll take it back. <laughs> no, gosh. Uh, 25 years, maybe. Wow. Yeah, no, more than that. Probably 26. So, you, yeah, long so time. you've outlasted her in your. I did. Yeah. I did. So, anyway, she stood up to the studios in a way that most actresses didn't. They wanted to change her name, they wanted to change it to Bettina Dawes. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? So Betty says, I refuse that name because I refuse to be called between the drawers my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> See, she she sounds like a rad chick. Already. <laughs> uh, please yeah. welcome to the stage between the drawers. I feel like it's a <laughs> <Imagine>. <laughs> could be oh one of those God. pun names. 
So, yeah, so she stood up to the studios. Uh, at one point, she even sued Warner Brothers because she thought the movies that they were having her do were crap. And this was like a big deal because the studio system had not been challenged in this way. She lost her case. <laughs> they made her do the crappy yeah. movies. The judge in the case called her like a naughty girl. It's like really disgusting. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Come on. I mean, I'm surprised. Like, it is a big deal, like you said, that she that she would speak up for herself yeah. because clearly there's probably not any other women that she could that, that were in power in the studio that she could align herself with and say, Hey, do you see what's happening to me here? Like you need some help. Yep. And there's not that. So when you're doing this by yourself, that's really scary. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, this set the stage for later on, about 10 years later, another actress uh, filed a similar suit and she actually won. Mm. Not only did she not mind being difficult when it comes to like her personal life and like advocating for herself at her job, but she liked to play difficult characters. So at the time, many actresses did not want to play um, unsympathetic characters. They didn't want mm -hmm. to play villains. But Betty saw it as a challenge to show her range as an actress. She said, uh, I'll remind you that my audience responds most strongly to me in my bitch performances. <laughs> mm. And so she got known as for playing the bitches, basically, mm -hmm. um, which I think is excellent. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. A reviewer of one of Betty's movies said, I think Betty Davis would probably have been burned as a witch if she had lived two or three hundred years ago. Um, wow. Something to aspire to, I'd say. So in 1934, she played a <laughs> – I was trying to describe this character and I put a real horrible fuckboy of a lady. Wow. <laughs> in this movie of human bondage. Basically, uh -huh. the story is of this, this guy. He gets obsessed with this girl and she's just mean to him the whole time. But at the very end of the movie, she's like – very poor and gets sick and is on her deathbed. And Betty thought it was really important to play that realistically. She okay. said, I made it very clear that my character was not going to die of a dreadful disease looking as if a Deb had missed her noon nap. So she didn't want to look just like a pretty woman who, you know, was slightly ill. She was going to look really ill for this. She said, the last stages of consumption, poverty, and neglect are not pretty, and I intend to be convincing looking. So does she just, like, live on the street? or? <laughs> no, I don't think she, what like, she method acted it, but I think at the time... I think it was much more like stage acting, right? Like you didn't have to be like okay. as realistic, like the makeup and the, the clothes and all that. You could just be like, oh, you know, hand over your head. I'm dying uh -huh. sort of thing versus like a, she really looks like she's dying. <laughs> huh. Yeah. So her choice to embrace this ugly reality of her character and her ability to let herself look ugly on screen is what won audiences over. Mm -hmm. Everybody loved this movie and they thought, you know, she's got to win the uh, the Oscar for Best Actress because this is incredible. How Look at what she's done here. But when the Oscars rolled around, she got snubbed. She was not even nominated. Betty got completely snubbed. Completely Nothing. snubbed. Nothing. And, and what were her fans like going crazy? Absolutely. And her fellow uh, actors. So they oh. all got together and they called out the Oscars and they got them to change the voting procedures. 
So now anybody who is a a voting member of the Academy could just write Mm -hmm. in a candidate if they weren't officially nominated. I see. So like not only is she like challenging the rules on a personal basis, she's getting her friends and her fans to challenge the rules of the studio system and of Hollywood itself. Uh, So she's pretty incredible, Betty Davis. And that's even before she runs into Joan. So let's let's talk a little bit about Joan. Joan Crawford was almost the opposite of Betty Davis when it came to working with the studio system. She did everything they asked. They wanted to change her name and she was like, okay, let's change it. She was so chill with them changing their name that in order to change her name, MGM held a contest. They put it in a magazine and it was said, name her and win a thousand dollars. And it's got a picture of her. It's like, this is our newest star. Wow. The name she got was Joan Arden. Not Joan Joan Crawford. Joan Arden. In the 90s, we had Jan Arden. Oh, well, so that's the thing. They looked it up. There was already a Joan Arden who was an actress. Okay. <laughs> so okay. I was some disconnect between the contest runner and the and the legal department, I think. But anyway, so they, they changed it slightly. They picked Crawford. And Joan... Just slightly. Joan hated it. Just... <laughs> she thought it sounded like crawfish. It does a little bit. Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. You know, but she went with it because, like I said, she was she was easygoing. Oh, you know what her original her real name is? Is Lucille Lassure. I like that better. Ooh. I think that's beautiful. The studio execs thought it sounded like the sewer. Oh, I guess you're you're you can, um, you know, my friend is a drag king, and I I always thought that he was named after a beverage, and then somebody said, "No, let that roll off your tongue a little bit better," and I said. Landon Cider. Landon Cider. <laughs> Landon Cider. Oh. Oh. Took me like, I don't took it took me a couple of months and I was like, you bad, bad thing. <laughs> like totally changed your perception like, too of your Like friend, a studio I exec. I said, what what did the what did the studio exec say? You, or the judge, you bad girl. You naughty girl. <laughs> you naughty girl. Landon Cider. <laughs> so uh, when Joan came to the studio, she had freckles and red hair, and they covered it all up. They slapped the makeup on her, and they dyed her hair dark brown. Too innocent. Too innocent. So also when she got to the studio, she had an accent. And so in order to get rid of her accent, she would lock herself in a room and read into the mirror for hours and hours trying to kill her accent. Where was she from? Texas. She was from San Antonio. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, one yeah, of my my compatriots. Texas. After all these changes that the studio made on her, they gave her a bunch of roles, you know, and her big break was in 1928's Our Dancing Daughters, uh, which is very popular and it made her a star. And in that movie and the follow up uh, movies to that movie, she played a flapper. Delta, do you know of what's a flapper for people who might not know about it? My grandmother was a flapper. Ooh. And yeah, and they would go to like dance dance halls, dance parties, and my grandparents met because my grandfather was in a band where my flapper 
grandmother was dancing and yeah. cute dresses. It was all about a, a flat chest and a, and, a sh- mm-hmm. and a dress that was just a shift. It was just straight up and down. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't really see the corsetry coming back until like the 40s. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so the flapper look was like short skirts, bobbed hair, listened to jazz, you know, uh, sort of flaunted their disdain mm-hmm. for acceptable behavior. It was sort of like, you know, uh-huh. the young the young girl's counterculture. So anyway, uh, this is Joan Crawford to a T. She was this huge star of these movies and she was very glamorous. Um, You know, one time she was asked about it and like, what's it like to be such a glamorous person? And she said, well, if you want to see the girl next door, go next door. Oh, I love that. Right? You come to the movies to see some glamour. (laughs) Right. So. Moving on. Her next move is that she marries this son of Hollywood royalty, the son of Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And so this is important because this like solidifies her as like, you know, like the Brangelina or something of her time. Mm -hmm. The same year that she um, marries is when MGM transfers over to the talkies, which you might know ruined many actors' careers because they weren't ready to do the talkies. You know, they had a hard time memorizing lines or they had a weird accent or they couldn't, you know, change the acting style. Because the acting style is different. When you have words, you don't have to be so exaggerative with your facial expressions, with your body expressions. Right, right. right. But Joan, she, she did great. You know, she had worked on her accent back when she started out. And so she transitioned from her flapper films right into being cast as like the love interest in movies, being the glamorous object of affection. So now here is the first time that she's going to run into Betty. Betty and Joan are going to smash into each other right when we come back. Ow. Kapow. Kapow. All right. So so Joan had married this guy who was, you know, Hollywood royalty, but it mm-hmm. wasn't going very well. And she gets divorced. She cites grievous mental cruelty. He was a big drinker. It seems like he was abusive. And when news of their divorce hits the press, it's this huge deal. You know, Hollywood it girl and the son of Hollywood royalty are getting divorced like this is this is huge. Not good. And no fault of Joan, but this really messed with Betty because Betty's had a big movie coming out that same weekend when this news breaks. And so all of the coverage about Betty's movie was pushed (laughs) or it wasn't even covered. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. And so Betty's movie had to close two weeks later due to bad ticket sales. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the first time they run into each other, and it's really neither of their faults, right? Nobody is trying to mm-hmm. hurt each other at this moment. The next time they run into each other uh, is a little bit later on. Uh, they're both in their mid-20s. They're both well-situated in their careers. It's uh, 1935, and, you know, like I said, Joan is playing these glamorous love interests, and Betty is playing these, like, critically acclaimed villains and tough characters. So Betty's in a new movie called Dangerous, and she's starring with an actor named Francho Tone. 
So Betty says of him, she says, everything about Francho just reflected his elegance from his name to his manners. You know, she was she was falling for him head over heels for him. Big crush. But he didn't know. She never made a move on him. She oh, never you got to speak up. That's a different time, but now you got to speak up. Got to speak up. So Francho, at the same time, was falling for Joan. <sighs> Betty said he was madly in love with her. They would meet for lunch Awful. every day. He would return to set his face covered in lipstick. He was honored that this great star was in love with him. And I was jealous, of course. So jealous. That's so sad. Yeah. It is sad. It is. It is. Unrequited love Ugh. is. And then once you're like someone like someone in your same sort of realm. Yes. And I can't even imagine in that situation. Yes. too. Wow. That's sad. Right. Right. Uh, so another thing Betty said about it is that she said that Joan took him from me. She did it coldly, mm. deliberately and with complete ruthlessness, which to me, that's a lot for unrequited love. You know, Mm -hmm. she didn't know. He didn't know. Do you think I would have won? Do you think I would have won the Joan Crawford name contest if I would have entered the name Ruthless? Ooh, yes. So Joan said she was very dismissive of Betty's crush. She said, Francho said that he thought Betty was a good actress, but he never thought of her as a woman. Oh, all right. But this is where it gets really spicy. (laughs) I need to hear it. Okay. I need to hear it. So a close friend of Jones claimed that Joan once said, well, Fred Show isn't interested in Betty, but I wouldn't mind giving her a poke if I was in the right mood. Oh, all right. <laughs> also, it's gay, right? Is she? Yeah. Yeah. And so Joan, yeah. it turns. But we know this, I think, don't we? Yes, we do. Yes. That she actually this. had affairs with men and women. I didn't know this till yeah. I read this. And I was like, what? Joan Crawford? Yeah. A bi queen, yeah. uh, you know, pan or whatever out uh-huh. there living her best life. <laughs> I think they both. I, I don't know. I think there's so much to Hollywood that's so secretive and. Yeah. People would do anything for the studios, like you said. You want the work, you want the notoriety, you want the the you know um, the the safety of that. Yes. But then you have to do everything they say, and that certainly you're not going to be a chick running around with a chick or a guy running around with a guy. You're going to run to Palm Springs or Long Beach right. here in Southern California and go have your little trysts and your getaways. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It was extremely difficult to be gay at the time. Never mind out. Nobody was out. Like, you know, this is the 30s and especially in Hollywood, I would say. You know, you could be raided at a bar and get arrested and have your name printed in the newspaper as a as a as a pervert sent to medical mental health hospitals. Just all kinds of bad things could happen to you. Right. So so you know, this this line about her saying that she would give Betty a poke if she was in the right mood is definitely interesting to me. It's one of those that, of course, we can't really substantiate. But, you know, it's out there. And her having affairs with, with women is out there. There's another rumored quote. This one is, Betty was rumored to say, Joan Crawford hates me because she made a pass at me and I declined. Joan was accustomed to getting her way in the bedroom. Hmm. Okay. So there's like an underlying possibility of some sort of 
romantic interest, some sort of, sure. you know, letdown. But it's hard to know what actually happened. But I, I'll claim Joan. I'll claim Joan for, <laughs> yeah. for the women loving women. Okay, so, so far in the feud, we've got Joan's divorce outshadowing Betty's movie release. Not that big of a deal, but something that might, you know, make you a little mad. Joan stealing Betty's crush, even though Betty was not that loud about her crush. <laughs> like, she wasn't really mm-hmm. going for it, which, so I feel like that one's on Betty. Um, and now we add a dash of gay panic on Betty's part, thinking, oh, Joan's after me. I feel like Joan is definitely speaking up for herself. She's taking what she wants, uh, especially at a time when that was so frowned upon. And, you know, we were term- using the terms like well, that's masculine behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think she's sort of winning at this point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, she's she's getting what she wants. Well, by saying what she wants. Right. She went after Francho and Betty did not. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I would like to have this and, I, and I'm going to have it. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. There you go. Well, OK, so here's a fun thing that happens at the 1936 Oscars. Betty wins for her performance in Dangerous, you know, the movie she was co-starring in with Francho. She had no clue that she was going to win. She really didn't think so. So she wore like a very plain dress to the ceremony because she thought she was just there for the party. It was a plain navy dress. It was actually an old costume that she had access to. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And Can't do that. (laughs) When her name was read, Franchot got up and hugged her and was like, congratulations, right? But Joan, who was at this time now married to Francho, not only had they fallen in love and been kissing all the time, but now oh. they're married. Joan just kept her back to to Betty and like didn't say congratulations, didn't say, oh, you know. Francho was like, Joan, don't be rude. She just won an Oscar. <laughs> and apparently what Joan turns and says to Betty is, dear Betty, what a lovely frock. Oh, shade. <laughs> Shade. And I was kind of thinking that when you said she kept her back to her, I was hoping there was a big sweep of a dress that like threw over Betty. Like, oh, pardon me. I just wanted to <laughs> congratulate you. I love how you just wear anything. <laughs> You're so confident. You just wear anything. Oh, wow. So whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Oh. The rest of us are caught up in all this machine. Not you. Not you. You keep it real. Both feet on the ground. You never cared about glamour. Yeah. <laughs> So Joan actually moves studios. She goes to Warner Brothers, where Betty is, and she demands the dressing room right next to Betty's, um, Um, which I think is interesting. Why are you trying to get so close to somebody that you've got some animosity with? Right. And apparently for a decade, Joan sent numerous gifts and flowers to, to Betty to try to win her over and to, you know, get back on her side. So... You know, things are dormant for a little bit in the feud. But at some point, Betty is offered a role, uh, the title role, in this movie called Mildred Pierce. This is 1945. Mm -hmm. She turns down the role. Betty's like, this is crap. Don't want this. Well, Joan, who's now at the same studio, she takes it. Because Joan, Mm -hmm. of course, is agreeable with the studio. And the director hates her. The director is so mean to her. At some point, he rips Joan's dress and accuses her of wearing shoulder pads and says, she comes over here with her high hat airs and her goddamn shoulder pads. Why should I waste my time directing a has-been? 
What is so bad about shoulder pads? Agreed. Well, it's also there's a bit of like uh, confidence that comes in that that presentation that, you know, men are supposed to have broad shoulders. Men look. So if you're, you know, seated and you look up at this, you know, this person with these shoulder pads who you think is supposed to be listening to you with your bony finger in their face and they even just are are wearing trappings that are considered masculine, yeah. it becomes a problem because right. you're presenting this way. Right. What do you think? You're in charge here? Yeah. I'm the director. Why are you challenging my masculinity? Yeah. Oh. So she gets through the filming of it and this movie does great. And she earns the Oscar for best actress um, for this. Joan does. One and one for each of them. That's right. Much later, she said, the thing I most appreciate about Betty Davis is that she turned down the role in Mildred Pierce. I honestly wow. believe that she regretted turning it down when I got my Oscar, but she got plenty of Oscars. And if she'd taken the part, she wouldn't have gotten an Oscar for it. Because mm, she's just not as good. I guess. That's how she feels. It's like... That was shady, but also confusing, Joan. You could have yeah. done some sharper, you know, needling of, of Betty with that one. <laughs> you know when kids, like, make fun of somebody that they have a crush on? Oh, yes. I mean, was she doing that? Was she, like, <gasps> well, did funny. she like this interaction? Like, Yeah. It's funny because, you know, for as much inaccurate stuff as in, as is in uh, that feud show, one thing that they do go back to is, like, in the world of humans, these two women have more in common than most everybody right. else would have to them. There's no reason right. they shouldn't be best friends, basically. You know, they yeah. could share in like, ugh, this this happened to me. Oh, that happened to me. This director did that. That director did this. You know, they both go through a few divorces. Like, they really have so much in common. There's, It makes no sense that they're not friends. Because at the end of the day, they still have to report to men who are saying, which one of you is going to be the successful one? Right. Exactly. Because there's only one. Fuck. It's the patriarchy keeping them down, making yeah, them compete. 100%. They love it. They love that these two people are fighting with each other. Yep. It makes It's great for yep. them. Yep. Which I think sums up the whole thing. You know. It does sum it all up. Okay. So after the break, we'll hear about the first and only time that Joan and Betty started a movie together. And how that created a whole new genre of movie. So they're both in their mid-50s when Joan comes up with this idea to use their public rivalry to benefit them. She goes out and finds a, a book to make into a script. Like Joan is like proactive in doing this. And the book is called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Mm -hmm. And she convinced a director to film it. <laughs> um, and she's like, Betty, you've got to do this. You've got to do this movie with me. And Betty finally agreed to do it. She bargained for more money for top billing. And then finally she signed on. So have you seen what happened to Baby Jane? Whatever happened to Baby Jane? I have. I have an, another movie with recognizable lines. But you are, Blanche. <laughs> you are in that wheelchair. Yes. And then, of course, I've written a letter to daddy. <laughs> Fucking frightening. It's so the scary. Whole thing is frightening. I just watched it. I watched it last night. And oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> it's terrifying. Weird, scary, bizarre. Yes. 
Very much. Yeah. It's a psychological horror about these two sisters. They're both older. They're in their 50s and they're living together. One is taking care of the other one because she lost use mm-hmm. of her legs from a car accident. Right. One of the sisters, the one who is the caretaker, uh, was a vaudevillian child star known as Baby Jane. Um, and that's Betty. And the other, Joan, was a famous movie star as an adult before the accident happened. And, and you know, the baby Jane the, has to take care of her. And baby Jane is very much stuck in the world of baby Jane and being right. that vaudevillian performer. And she's got the, the curls and the bows and the, 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 the makeup on it's Betty. Frightening. I don't know what product they use then, but now you would use a thing called just clown white. And the clown white, it was just like, a, it was so cakey and powdery that it was in every crevice. So it looked like dry, almost dry desert, like after the rain. <laughs> yes. And then the blush was in like two perfect circles. And then there was like something like the eyeliner underneath that made the white of the eye look even bigger and clownish. Big overdrawn red lips and a, a Clara bow beauty mark too oh yeah yes i use it as a face chart today um for when i got ready and it uh, it translates differently for each person but yeah it's very specific yeah yeah and the movie is great but during the making of the movie according to some people the feud was on fire (laughs) these women hated Mm. each other so at one point during the movie betty has to to drag joan like a lot. She has to take her out of her bed and go across the room. And it said that for these scenes, Joan, knowing that Betty had back problems, put on her waist extra weight um, on oh a gosh. belt. <laughs> Where are these people? So who knows if that actually happened, but that would be a lot of fun. There are these scenes where baby Jane, Betty's character, is kicking Joan's character. And they, you know, use a body double. They use like a, they use a mannequin. Mm-hmm. But there are close-up mm-hmm. shots where they want to see the reaction on Joan's face. And so, you know, Betty's got to do a fake kick. But on one of these, she hits her in the head with her foot. She hits her real oh hard, gosh. a big kick. <laughs> and and um, Betty said, oh, I barely touched her. But Joan says, I have to get stitches. So it's oh, like, uh, you know. Who who can say how bad it was or if it even happened? But I would say like making physical contact with each other is a little a little rough. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's taken a long time for them to get to that point. I feel like they could have gotten to that point. Oh yeah. Back at the Oscars. I right? mean they really could have. At least at the after party, my God. Right? You know? No, we'd have to wait yeah. for there to be slapping at the Oscars until much more recently. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so anyway. Audiences were excited to see these two rivals on screen together. And when this movie came out in 1962, it was a huge success. It was the comeback that both of them needed. The movie is remembered as a public document of their real life feud. And it was so successful that it actually created its own genre of uh, what's what was called hagsploitation, mm-hmm. also known as psychobiddy. 
you know, these movies where there's one woman is fixated on her past and she becomes, you know, pretty mentally ill and violent. And it's kind of misogynistic. It's pretty misogynistic, these movies, but they can be a lot of fun, too. This podcast is actually is exploitation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this is. Our category will yes. be that. Uh, but we're taking it back, to be clear. It's not misogynistic. Yeah. When we do it, we self-identify right. as hags. So it's yeah. okay. So hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's real. So whatever happened to Baby Jane does great. And there's a lot of buzz around the Oscars for this movie that they're both going to get nominated. And when it came time for the nominations, only one of them got nominated. Oh, which one do you think? Betty Davis. Correct. Yep. Betty Davis got nominated for playing Baby Jane, the right. deranged sister. And Joan was snubbed. No nomination yeah. for her. Okay, so so what happened after uh Well, she wasn't gonna take this lying down. Joan went out there and actively campaigned against Betty winning. This, again, is one of those stories that we don't can't really substantiate, but, like, she would call people and talk up the other performances that were nominated that year. Wow. <laughs> That's petty. That's pretty petty. That's petty. That's petty <laughs> officer reporting for duty. Exactly. For sure. But then this thing, this thing, this next thing she does is genius in terms of pettiness. <laughs> okay. She prearranges with several of the other nominees for Best Actress, she prearranges that if they can't make it, that she will accept on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And so when it's time for the Best Actress Award, um, Betty's super nervous. She's like, gosh, I hope I get it. This, you know, be a big deal to have a third Oscar. It would just make me so happy. You know, I feel like it would top out her career. And Betty does not get it. Who gets it is Anne Bancroft, who mm. is Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker, the movie about Helen Keller. But Anne Bancroft was not there. So guess what? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So Joan saunters on up to the stage. And accepts the Best Actress oh, Award. Oh, God. And Betty said, I almost dropped dead. I was paralyzed with shock to deliberately upstage me like that. Her behavior was despicable. Can you imagine? And Joan, like, spent the rest of the night posing with all the other winners and all the photos, like, holding Anne's Oscar around, you know, just pretending to be the winner, basically. <laughs> so Wow. Yeah. That is a lot. So let me wrap up here and bring it to the sort of last parts of their lives. Um, Joan made her last film appearance in 1970 in a very strange horror movie called Trog. T-R-O-G. I know the Trog. I actually <laughs> reference the Trog all the time. Oh, do you? When I'm talking about how ugly something is. Because there's if you look at the imagery of that, like mm -hmm. the Trog is this creature. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to wear that. I'll look like the Trog. <laughs> I can't wear that wig. That's that wig is the trog. Like I always reference that. 
I love I know. that. I love that. Well, he's like a missing link type character. He's like yeah. Geico commercials, except way cheaper looking and uglier. Right. The plot I wrote is similar to Encino Man meets Frankenstein. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was kind of a weird last movie choice, I feel like. In 1973, a few years later, Crawford made her last public appearance. She co-hosted a party, and when she saw the unflattering photos the next day, she said, if that's how I look, then they won't see me anymore. Wow. Which I hope to one day have the strength and courage. <laughs> right. D- determination to say, wow, if people, are, if this is what you get, then okay, you're not gonna. Yeah. Just a very glamorous lady who decided no more. Yeah. And then she died in 1977. When Betty was called by the press to comment on Joan's death, Betty said, You should never say bad things about the dead. Only good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. And that was it. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Well, there's one more facet that I want to tell you about and then ask about in terms of winning and losing, which is in 1978, one of Joan's daughters, the oldest, Christina Crawford, Mm -hmm. she published a best-selling book called Mommy Dearest, claiming that her mother was emotionally and physically abusive. And her brother was like, yes, this is true. But the two younger children, they said, no, this is not true. How dare you? And this book was made into a film in 1981 starring Faye Dunaway and gave us all of those wonderful lines. Like there's all these like over dramatic campy like what? Did she really do that or you know maybe she did. She's at a board meeting for Pepsi. And she's like I own 51% of stock in this company. She goes, "Don't fuck with me, fellas. This ain't my first time at the rodeo." Whoa. She says it like that. And then there's another line is like, why would you put a wall where a window belongs? Tear down that bitch of a wall. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And she gets so upset. Tina, (laughs) bring me the axe. She has to chop down the rose bushes in the middle of the night. She's so mad. The other one is the no wire hangers. No wire hangers. And so both of those, I think, are like people go, oh, very Joan Crawford. Oh, that's Joan Crawford. And it's like, well, I don't know if she ever really said that. But, right. you know, in a movie, it makes you believe that that's a Joan Crawford line. Yes. Which is so but, strange. Yeah. Because if you if you were tell, to ask me, name one Joan Crawford line, I would say, no wire hangers. But yeah, she probably never said that. <laughs> no. She definitely didn't say it on film. You know, that was someone right. playing her. So interesting. Right. Oh, you know what's another one? I should have known you'd know where to find the boys and the booze. Ooh. She says that to, to <laughs> uh, that. Christina. Well, yeah. seeing the success of this, Betty Davis's daughter, whose name is BD, by the way, publishes a damning memoir about her mother. But she published this while Betty is still alive. Versus Damn. <laughs> Christina waited till Joan was dead. Oh, God. (laughs) These people. Wow. Betty's daughter's book was called My Mother's Keeper. And so Betty Uh -uh. responded to it and said, your book uh, is a lacking glare of loyalty. And thanks for the very privileged life that I feel you've been given. If memory serves me right, I have been your keeper all these many years. 
Wow. Yeah. So I feel like there's a secondary rivalry here of who's the best mother. (laughs) Right. Wow. Neither of them really seem to be caring to be good mothers. Who do you think wins in the mother race? (laughs) You know, at least Joan was like gone before she had to hear of any of this. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Releasing that book while you're alive. (laughs) Shit. So rude. It is. But I feel like it's basically was just like the book was like, well, fuck you. And the other one's like, fuck you too. Screw you. (laughs) Screw you too. Right. right. Everybody is just like mad at everybody. Betty worked all the way up until her death. She died in 1989. And at that time, she was still filming a movie. That movie was called Wicked Stepmother. Of course it was. Which I love. Her first movie was Bad Sister. Her last movie was Wicked Stepmother. (laughs) Of course. And her tombstone says, she did it the hard way, Betty Davis. She did it the hard way. The hard way. Shady way. I want to ask you who is our definitive winner, but I also want to ask you, what do you think this feud was about? I think Joan was attracted to Betty and I think she might, whether she acted on it or not, I think if she didn't, then there was a fear of doing that. Mm -hmm. But there was that like temptation waiting. Mm -hmm. I think this feud was fueled by the fact that I, 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 I think that she, she's very attracted to Betty. Yeah. I agree with you. I wonder if there was ever a relationship between these two. That's That's my dream. That's what I'm kind of thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. But I, I say Joan won. I say Joan won. I'm just going to say it. I feel like I like the way Joan lived her life as far as what we understand from this. Yeah. I wonder when Anne Bancroft got that Oscar from her. Right. Or did she ever? <laughs> right. <laughs> From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is Fierce Rivalries, hosted by me, Delta Work. And me, Kelsey Paget. I also produce the show. Gabriella Santana is our associate producer. Caitlin Pierce is our editor. Our production coordinators are Sasonia Davenport, Tamika Balance Kolosny, and Lily Hambly. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Josh Gibbs is our engineer. Our executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Caitlin Pierce. TJ Raphael was our development producer. 